if you're in Germany or Switzerland and you have professional camera equipment and sound equipment, uh, please contact me at freemanbeyondthewall at protonmail.com. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. This is your host, Pete Quinones. I invited Stefan Kinsella to come on the show. Most people listening know who Stefan Kinsella is. He's going to give his credentials right in the beginning of the recording. Stefan is going to talk about Hans Hermann Hoppe's argumentation ethics. He's going to give us a 101 on it, a primer. And after this, I think you will understand why some people prefer to use argumentation ethics when talking about libertarianism than they do natural law arguments. So without any further delay, here is Stefan Kinsella. Stefan Kinsella, welcome to the show. How are you? I am well. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you. Thanks for uh, taking my invitation. I wanted to start out because um, I mean, we've... We we know each other. We we've hung out in New Hampshire and everything. But you've this is the first time you're on the show. So um, why don't you run down your credentials? Although I'm pretty sure most of the people listening know who you are. So um, just do a quick little uh, rundown. I don't know. I'm a little bit leery about credentials. Lots of libertarians I know hate people with credentials because they think you're, <laughs> they think you're part of the state, man. You know. If yeah, you have, but you're... If you have a bar license or whatever. You know. <laughs> I I think you. I, if anybody has a problem with that, just contact me, and uh, we'll, I'll I'll be happy to have a discussion about uh, Stefan and point you to some of Stefan's writings where you'll uh, you'll see where he's coming from. But um, go ahead, do it anyway. Well, I'm um, I was an engineer and then lawyer in law school, and then I became a patent attorney, and I've been like a, a big firm and then in-house lawyer, and now my own practice attorney in my private practice for a while, but part of that uh, education I got in law and, of course, on my own through Austrian economics, um, you know, I, I've developed a side sort of side interest or a hobby over these last 25, 30 years. I've been heavily interested in libertarian legal theory and Austrian economics and law, those kinds of matters. So I write, I speak, and I'm also a practicing lawyer on the side, and one thing I think I'm known for is because I'm a patent attorney, an intellectual property attorney, and I realized early on how horrible and evil the system is, right? How patent and copyright law are completely antithetical to private property rights, the free market, and individual liberty, um, which I thought about because I was doing that for a living, so I thought I would investigate that. Um, so I've sort of been no. So I wrote on that because I actually understand the law, but I I, I think I came to a conclusion that it, it how I could explain how horrible it is. So the patent and copyright system are two of the things I've written a lot about. It's actually not my main interest. I've written on a lot of other libertarian topics, but the one that most people kind of know about who don't know me well would be my anti-intellectual property writings. But I've also written on. Uh, legislation, legal systems, 
uh, rights theory, uh, causation and responsibility, contract theory, and those kinds of matters. So I'm basically a Austrian anarchist, pro-property rights libertarian attorney. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> that's that's yeah, that, yeah. that's that's a lot of education. All right. The reason I asked you to come on today is because this concept that uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe came up with, and I think he came up with it in the uh, in the book, The Economics and Ethics of Private Property, is argumentation ethics. And of course, I'm I'm going to want you to do you know a 101 on this, but when you first look at it, it looks like an alternative to. If, if someone makes an argument from natural law, say, hey, if I can't demand 30% of your income, how can I tell somebody else? How can I delegate to somebody else that they can do it? And people make arguments like that. And those arguments right. make sense to me. I mean, <laughs> I use them all the time. But it seems like this is a an alternative that basically uses the theory of argumentation of debate. So... Is it an alternative to natural light, uh, natural rights debate? Well, I would say it's a yeah, it's an alternative version of that, but with some differences. Uh, let me let me give a little context on all this. I mean, most of us libertarians who are interested in this, I mean, you have a lot of Ron Paul types, a lot of activist types. They don't always think in terms of rights, or if they do, they tend to mix it mix it together with constitutional rights or government granted rights, but the concept of rights is a common one that we throw around, and there's something normative about that. A norm is like a rule that people are expected to follow, and that's different than the the, uh, the sciences of physics, for example, where we're trying to be descriptive all right, and figure out what the rules of causality are in the world. This is what the natural science does, but uh, political science or philosophy or ethics tends to study… Um, norms, which are, are, are rules that tell us what we should do. So we distinguish between should and is, or between description and prescription. We describe the way the world is, that's physics and science, or we prescribe what we should do in certain cases. So this is basically – and libertarians have a certain view on what should be the case, which affects their view of law. So basically libertarians think the law should reflect the idea of – Live and let live, or the non-aggression principle, something roughly along those lines, right? So this is basically our view of rights. Whereas the view of rights of most other people is either the old-school natural law type, or the utilitarians, or just mainstream positivists, which is most people who basically think that the government is the source of rights through the de democratic majority expressed to the legislature. They pass laws, written laws that. Tell us what we should and shouldn't do. So right now, for example, you know the law says that you should not sell cocaine in effect because if you do, we will put you in prison. You should not evade your income taxes because if you do, we will put you in prison. There's a consequence for that. So this is this kind of um, legal realist mentality most people tend to have that the law is what the government enforces. And then they argue before the Supreme Court or before courts like, oh, well, here's what the Constitution really meant, but they usually blend in with it natural law type arguments. So I would say the traditional kind of classical liberal, which is the precursor of libertarianism, right? The classical liberals, um, 
they did rely heavily on natural law. Now, natural law was more like the world is a certain way. It is a certain way because God or nature decreed it. Um, certain things are right and wrong, whether the government recognizes it or not. So there's this there's this standard of right and wrong outside of the state, and so the state can be wrong. So this is sort of against this legal positivism mentality. So the problem with natural law thinking is that number one, and natural rights thinking, right? Those things are are linked together. The problem is that natural law thinking has been heavily influenced with other things other than personal sovereignty rights, but just general morals and norms and heavily affected by religion like the Catholic Church, for example. So I mean I think one of the famous libertarian kind of uh, gadflies, Robert Anton Wilson, wrote this – who wrote some great novels, right? some conspiracy theory novels about uh, – um, the founding of the U.S. and all this kind of stuff, but um, he wrote this book called uh, Don't Put a Rubber on Your Willy, and he was making fun of Catholic natural law teaching that it's immoral to use contraception, right? Um, and you can make arguments about that, and they really have nothing to do with libertarianism, but natural law thinking – gets intertwined with natural law thinking about rights or natural rights thinking. So you have this kind of skepticism that emerges when people say it's objectively wrong to commit murder or it's objectively wrong to tax people to steal their property because then you start saying, well, that's just the edicts of the church or God or some kind of religious thing, and that leads to saying homosexuality is wrong and you shouldn't have contraception and these kinds of things. So people tend to get skeptical of the natural law foundation of ethics, and they then they resort to what, whatever they have, which is just democracy, the will of the majority, which leads to legal positivism. Like whatever the legislature announces or decrees, that is what law is. Okay, but then but then there's an uncomfortable difference because so like the the, the lefties in the U.S. like Roe versus Wade, the, the the abortion decision of the Supreme Court. Although it's just a legal ruling of a bunch of guys on a court who call themselves judges, but these guys would oppose it. They would say it's wrong for the court to overturn Roe versus Wade. So even when they say it's wrong, they're sort of importing extra legal considerations, which is where natural law reasoning comes into it. So that's kind of a brief overview. Now, um, in libertarian theory, I would say modern libertarianism arose or emerged in the in probably in the fifties and the sixties with with some of the old right figures um, like Albert J. Nock and Mencken, but then really with the foundation for economic education and Leonard Reed, and then Milton Friedman, and then Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard. So like these guys basically created the new libertarian brand of classical liberalism, right, which was really more focused upon hyper-free market economics, individual liberty and sovereignty, and individual rights, right? And then in the more extreme versions like Rothbard, anarcho-capitalism. So this is the genesis of it, and they, a lot of them traced their roots to the old right or to conservatives who had some appreciation for natural law. Uh, and for the constitution and traditional forms of government that had ways of limiting what the government could do. So that's sort of the the background of where this came from. But 
then so the, the primary argument, if you want to call it a natural law argument, is just something like according to man's nature, we should act a certain way to live a good life. And the problem some people have pointed out with this is a logical problem. It's called the is-ought gap or the is-ought dichotomy, which means that the, the realm of is, which is a realm of description of the way the world works in, in, in causal terms like the, the rules of physics, is one realm of understanding the way the world is. And, and the other realm is the rule of oughts or norms or shoulds or prescription. And Hoppe – so so Murray Rothbard, I would say, is the preeminent libertarian thinker of all time. I mean he coalesced everything. He was radical. He was, he was sweeping in his vision. He is the preeminent libertarian. Ayn Rand also had a lot to do with it. And in modern times, Ron Paul drew people into it, but I wouldn't say he's a major figure in terms of ideas. But I would say Rothbard is like the, the genesis of, of libertarianism, and he had a lot of – Appreciation for Aristotle and the natural law tradition. But then he had a student in the 80s named Hoppe, Hans Hermann Hoppe, a German guy who was more influenced by the Kantian and the German tradition, who appreciated the spirit of Rothbard's views and the libertarian views, but he had a different take on it. And what he said was the problem with natural law thinking, natural rights thinking, is that number one, Human nature is very vague and diffuse. It's not very precise. Humans can be malleable. They can do lots of things. So to say what any person should do, it's hard to really say that you know what they should do. Maybe someone should be a eunuch. Maybe someone should be a celibate. Maybe someone should be a hermit. Maybe someone should be a composer. Maybe someone should be an engineer. Maybe someone should be a housewife. I mean you can't say what they should do. Human nature is very diffuse. And number two, you have this logical problem of bridging the is-ought gap, uh, and this is what um, um, Hume, David Hume pointed out too. David Hume pointed out that whenever you hear someone argue that because of the way something is, this is how they ought to act… You notice that they slip from is to ought like imperceptibly with a sort of subtle, almost a sneaky argument because you can't say because this dog is alive, this dog should do this, or because this man is a man, he should do this. You're introducing a different categorical comment when you say they should do this. So the idea is that these are logically unbridgeable, and this is Hoppe's view, is that you really can't derive an ought from an is. So this is the problem that has plagued philosophy and natural law thinking for a long time. In my view, I think this is a correct criticism. Basically, the idea is that you really can't build an ought or a normative statement upon a descriptive or an is statement. There's always an implicit ought statement underneath your first ought statement. So you're basically – when you talk to someone and you say, look, we, we both agree the world is like this. So here's how we should act. Here's the rules that we should follow. Um, libertarian rules or collectivist rules, whatever they are, but we're saying there's some rules we should follow, some norms. Um, what you're really doing is you're appealing to some kind of commonly shared norms that you already share with the person you're talking to. And this was Hoppe's insight. So Hoppe basically said, look, there is a flaw in natural law thinking because they're trying to go from is to ought, and you just can't do that. Basically, any ought that we want to propose has to rely upon other oughts. So his insight, based upon his um, 
based upon his influence from his 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 PhD advisor, who's a famous German philosopher named Jürgen Habermas, who was socialistic, social democratic, but he he was one of the most famous thinkers, and he originated this idea called um, the argument the, uh, dialogical arguments or argumentation ethics. And now his version is not the same as Hoppe's because Hans is a libertarian influenced by Rothbard and Austrian economics. So he took the basic insight of his socialist teacher, which was that when you have a democratic society, any norms that the people propose have to satisfy certain underlying presuppositions of the argument itself. So it's like a transcendental or a meta argument. Okay. But he is this very loosey goosey. So he's he ends up concluding that, oh, well then you have to have democracy and you have to have welfare rights and all this kind of stuff. Because he just wasn't uh, very solid on economics, so his argument sort of went off the rails. But the core of the argument influenced Hans, and he said, listen, I'm a Misesian, I'm a Rothbardian, I'm a libertarian, and I think that the way to look at all this is that when, when we talk about rights, you have to imagine the context is always um, two human beings or two actors, he would call it in Misesian terms, communicating with each other and discussing the resolution of a disagreement. They're trying to arrive on the truth about a, a given proposition, usually about the rules that we should adopt or that are fair. So the pre the presupposition of that activity is already basically quasi-libertarian or proto-libertarian because it's peaceful, because discussion and persuasion and discourse and dialogue is inherently a peaceful activity. So you have two people coming together agreeing to try to use reason and evidence and logic and discussion and persuasion and compromise even to come to an understanding of what the truth is about a matter, which which rule would be fair, which rule could you justify with an argument. So there's not a threat to hit the other guy on the head or to kill him if he doesn't agree with you. Like this is not how you find out whether the world if two people disagree whether the world is round, I mean you could just coerce the other guy into agreeing with you, but that's not going to get you towards the truth of knowing whether the world is round. You could you could torture someone into admitting the world is flat. Right, but a genuine discourse between two people means that they both recognize that force is ruled out of the picture. They have to rely upon so-called the force of argument alone. But once you understand this, you understand that there is like a, this sort of norm underpinning the entire endeavor. The only time you could ever have an argument about what norms are good or bad, what rules are fair, would be people entering into a peaceful realm discussing this with each other. And so Hans's insight is simply that that means that no one can ever justify a norm advocating like aggression against other people because that would be contrary to the peaceful stance taken by the people engaging the argumentation. And part of that argument is realizing that all justification of any norm whatsoever or any proposition would have to take place in discourse between people, and discourse by its nature is inherently peaceful. So this is the core of his argument. 
Once you accept that, you admit that there are some types of norms that are ruled out that could never even in principle be justified. Now, if you add a little economic literacy to that, like Austrian economics or whatever, then you can make that more fleshed out, and you can say basically that means that any socialistic norm could never be justified. So all you have remaining – so it's like a filtering test. All that you have remaining that could potentially be justified is the libertarian norm, which is that we respect each other's body rights, and we respect each other's uh, physical possessions that we have that allowed us to come to this conversation in the first place. So that is basically argumentation ethics, and it did not – just a, a minor technical quibble. It didn't, it didn't originate in his 1993 book, Economics and Ethics of Private Property. He originated it in, around 86 when he came to America to study for 10 years under Rothbard. He started publishing some precursors to it uh, at, some, at some societies and speeches and then in the Austrian Economics Newsletter. And then the first major public uh, version of it was in Liberty Magazine in 1988. There was a symposium issue where he um, set forth his argument, and then there was about 15 well-known libertarian scholars who all responded, like David Friedman, Murray Rothbard, Tibor McCann, um, Timothy Valla, uh, Verkala, uh, John Hospers, people like that, and… Uh, Douglas Rasmussen and Denoyal, lots of well-known uh, libertarian and Randian scholars at the time, um, and they were pretty much all critical to one degree or the other except for Rothbard. Rothbard was blown away by it and said, Hans has basically fixed kind of a problem in my own natural law thinking, and he solved the problem, and this is the new foundation for libertarian ethics. Others have been more skeptical, but over the years, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of speeches and talks and articles uh, studying and chewing over and expanding and elaborating on and extending uh, argumentation, of, including including my work, which was uh, my own rights theory, which I started developing uh, a few years later in law school. If you enjoy the show and you feel like you're benefiting from it, please consider supporting it at patreon.com forward slash Mansrader or at bitbacker.io forward slash user forward slash Pete Raymond. You can do that with cryptocurrency there or on my website, freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash store. You can support it with PayPal or with cryptocurrency there, and you can pay for the year. Thank you. So if you go on YouTube, there are videos about this. There is there are videos about Hoppe talking about it. Um, one of the videos is entitled, and you, you shared it with me. It's a seven seven minute odd video um, called "The A Priori of Ethics." And right, can you explain what a priori means and the the whole theory, how yeah. it works? Yeah, yeah, how that ties in. I can, and for anyone interested, by the way, so I have a website called StephanKinsella.com. Uh, and if you go to slash LLW, which is the initials for my new book that's coming out, Law in a Libertarian World, I have some sources there. Uh, I have, or on my publications page, I have an article called "A Concise Guard," a, uh, sorry, "A Concise Guide to Argumentation Ethics," and I collect in that piece uh, the, the YouTube videos we're about to talk about and um, lots of discussion of and summaries of and the best presentations of. 
argumentation ethics by Han. So if, if anyone's interested, just go to stephankinsella.com and go to my publications page and look for that one concise, gar, concise guide to argumentation ethics. And I kind of – I have a lot of resources linked there. Um, when Hans talks about a priori, so remember um, um, a lot of the original thinkers were sort of traditionalist, classical-styled, Aristotelian natural law types, okay, like Ayn Rand, uh, even some of the, uh, the classical liberal founders. Uh, even Rothbard was more of an Aristotelian. That's the language that they use, right? Like uh, we have a natural right to do this because of man's nature. It implies certain – uh, certain proper ways of living, these kinds of things, uh, how, how we should live together, what the law should be. Um, this is natural right or natural rights thinking or natural law thinking. Um, now, the Kantian – say uh, so Immanuel Kant was, um, a, of course, a, a, an influential and famous German philosopher. Uh, he was Ayn Rand's nemesis, although I think that it's mostly a matter of terminology, and actually a lot of Kant's thinking was compatible with Rand's. Um, he was a liberal, um, and there is a, a, a realist interpretation of Kant on the on the continent as opposed to the sort of idealist or skeptical interpretation of some Americans. He was obscure in his writing, so it, it, there's some excuse for people being all over the map on Kant. But basically Mises was a Kantian. Um, a neo-Kantian, a, a realist Kantian. He was a realist like Ayn Rand was and like we are. We believe there's a real reality, an objective reality. So he didn't buy into this um, nuomena and phenomena distinction that a lot of Kantians talk about, how we don't really know the world, etc. But part of – one crucial part of Kant's epistemology, right? his, his philosophy about how we can know things was he said that there are two types of knowledge, a priori and a posteriori. Meaning basically a posterior is things you know after the fact or basically empirical knowledge. This is what scientists do, natural scientists. They, they do studies trying to figure out like what the constant for the law of gravity is. It's just a fact out there. We don't know exactly what it is, but we can measure it and try to figure it out. But you couldn't deduce it from your armchair. Okay, uh, And then there's a priori truths, which are things that don't need evidence or that could not be rebutted by evidence like – the typical – like a logical example would be more of a Randian type example, like uh, you can know for sure that you exist. right? This is kind of what Descartes – even Descartes was a skeptic, but he came down to the one thing you could know for sure, which is cogito ergo sum. Right? I think, therefore I am. In other words, he said, if I'm thinking, that must mean I exist, so that's one thing I know for sure. I don't know – what kind of being I am. I don't know where I live. I don't know if the universe is the way it appears, but I do know that I exist. That can't be an illusion because I'm experiencing something. I'm thinking. So a priori truths – and then you can think of a priori truths or like mathematical things or logical or, – or the laws of the laws of logic like uh, a, uh, a is a. Like a thing is what it is, and A and not not A can't be true at the same time, the law of contradiction. So there are certain things that you think you can know a priori, and you could never disprove by an experiment. So we call those a priori. Now, the classic criticism of this way of looking at it is that 
fine. There are empirical truths or a posteriori truths that we can determine through evidence and experiment, right? And 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 um, and, and and physical testing, but a priori truths are fine, but they're all tautologies. They're all just empty. They're totally empty. They don't tell us anything about the world because they're they're all equivalent to the statement, um, all bachelors are men, because a bachelor's definition is an unmarried man. So if you just say all bachelors are men, you're not saying anything about the world. You don't know if there are any men. There may be a world with no men. There may be no bachelors, but so your statement is just true by definition or semantics, or it's just a tautology. It's useless. It gives you no information about the world. So the classical criticism of the a priori approach is that it, it's, it's a game. It's just a logical game that doesn't give you any information about the world. Or in math, it's like, a, it's like an axiom that you assume to be true, but maybe, it, maybe it's really not true, and so it only gives you information about the world to the extent that it applies, but no one knows if it applies. Or to know that it applies, you have to do empirical science or something like that. But what Kant said was that no, there, he said what everyone is saying is that there is synthetic and analytic knowledge. Synthetic means real knowledge about the way the world is, that it could have been different, and analytic would be a tautology. And, and the traditional criticism is that all a priori knowledge is, is analytic, and all synthetic knowledge has to be a, priori, a, a posteriori, like empirical. And he said, no, there's such a thing as a priori synthetic knowledge. In other words, you can deduce or you can have knowledge that is a priori, and Mises uses the word apodictic, which means absolutely certain, um, that is real knowledge about the world. And examples would be the categories of human action, which is what Mises came up with was the, his idea of praxeology, the, the, logic, the logic of human action. So he said, we know that we exist. We know that we exist as human actors because we act. It would be a contradiction to deny this. But action is a complex concept that implies many things, right? It's a structural way of formatting how we perceive of what humans do, and that is that they 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 employ scarce. Well, first of all, they're they're uneasy. He calls it. They're dissatisfied with the state of affairs that they dimly aware might be coming. They're they're unsatisfied about something that they think is coming in the future uh, if the world is left to unwind on its own. And so they have a desire to change that, and they have some awareness of the way the world works, some awareness of causal laws, some knowledge. So they acquire or grab or grasp some physical means that they think could interfere with the cause of events, and they act. They, they use these means, these scarce means or resources, and they change the course of history. To try to achieve a different result, which is called their goal or their end. So this is basically what human action is. And there's lots of – if you start thinking like an economist, you will see that lots of things are implied by this. You have the concept of opportunity cost, which is the economic concept. You have the concept of profit and loss. Um, so lots of things like this are categories in the Kantian sense. In the, in the Mises neo-Kantian sense, right? But they're a priori truths because they couldn't be denied, but they give us real knowledge about the world. Even the law of supply and demand can be derived from that. So for example, 
the Austrians therefore would say that we can know as a matter of ineluctable certainty or apodictic fact. We can know that the law of supply and demand is true and that some consequences of that are true, such as if the government is in control of the money and if the government inflates the supply of money, then prices uh, – there will be price inflation, all things being equal. That is a true statement. It is meaningful. It is not a mere tautology, and you could also make other statements like if the government um, imposes a minimum wage, the result will be relative unemployment. Now, the positivists like Milton Friedman, the empiricist, would say something like, well, we need to test all this. It's a useful hypothesis, but we need to test it. We need to have a big st study done across countries or across time. Use a big sample size, and let's see if that's right. And maybe, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. So they have this um, what Mises would call a monist view. A, a monist means they they think there's only one methodology. The only true science is the natural sciences, and the reason is because physics and chemistry, etc., and engineering have been so successful in the last 200 years that physics has become the king of science, and and everyone's tried to emulate that. They try to ape the methods of the physical sciences. So now you have psychology and sociology and even law and even mathematics to some degree is now becoming – is trying to ape the methods of the physics. But according to the Misesians this is, and the Kantians, this is a mistake. We need to li – we live in a uh, – we have to understand the world from the point of view of dualism, which means – there are two realms of phenomena that we seek as human actors to understand. One is the causal world, which is what, what cause and effect laws are there, what physics laws are there, what, how does gravity work, how does quantum theory work, whatever. Um, and then the other is what are the consequences of human action? Now, human action is a chosen activity where someone is teleologically aiming at a given end and employing means to achieve their ends. So for you to understand your neighbor and his actions, to, for you to count on it and to understand it and to format it in your brain, to think of him as a fellow actor as you think of yourself as an actor, you have to think of him as being driven by ends and means, not as a automaton being driven by the laws of physics and quarks and and, and, and these kinds of things. So you have to have a dualism. So we would say that Milton Friedman and the entire economics profession, you know, econometrics and empirical studies, regression analyses, overuse of mathematics has been a mistake because they keep trying to understand like we don't need to prove the law of supply and demand. We can we can deduce that it's true axiomatically or, or apodictically from what we know human action is. So that would be the main difference. Now what Hoppe did was he – now that this is all still uh, uh, non-normative. This is uh, scientific in the sense that both Mises and the Austrians are trying to understand the world just like physicists are. It's just that they're understanding a different realm of phenomena, economic phenomena, like what's the consequences of – people trading with each other? What's the consequences of the division of labor? What's the consequences of money being introduced into society? You might have to take teleology or human purpose into account and reason in a way different than the physical scientists do with experiments and, and variables and quantities. But they're all trying to understand the world in the descriptive sense. But Hans says well, when we talk about 
the normative realm, like that is what laws there should be, how should people act, what's ethically right and what's ethically wrong, then we can make a similar type of appeal to a priori. This is why I'm getting finally back to your question about when Hans talks about a priori. So what Hans notices is that a lot of the arguments, say, Mises made about economics, the a priori um, a priori reasoning about, say, human action, the origin, uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the categories of human action, profit, loss, um, supply and demand, all these kinds of things. Um, you can make a similar type of reasoning using like the Jurgen Habermas um, argumentation ethics idea, which is that, again, whenever we're talking about norms and ethics, it's always – by people that are embedded in a normative framework already. Like they're rest they're always resting. You could never have two people argue about what right what right and wrong rules are who are not already adopting a certain normative pose. Like they're to to engage in a discussion with each other, they have to presuppose and already value for whatever reason. They already have to value uh, peace, right? And 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 cooperative persuasion over over violence as the way to solve a dispute, and because that is an operative presupposition of all discussion in principle about what any norm could be, no norm could ever contradict that basic ground presumption, which which I call Grund norms after Hans Kelsen, a famous legal philosopher. Hans Kelsen talked about Grund norms. Ground, I mean Grund means ground. Ground norms, the basic underlying norms that underpin um, a legal system or, or in this case um, a normative discussion about what the law should be. That's long-winded, but that's basically my summary take of what the, what, what the field is like right now. Okay, if if that's the basics and you, you don't think that there's anything um, that you need to add on to that, can we go into like an example of, um, sure. you know, I'll play sure. I'll play the statist who um, believes in the social contract or something like that. And um, you know, sure, we can. OK, so, yeah, I mean, the argument goes is that you are born here by being born here. Um, you have you know, you have an obligation to the other people who were born here, because we all agree that the government up there is, um, you know, has our best interests at heart. So you have to pay your taxes, you have to pay all your taxes, and, um, you know, it needs to be distributed. Well, of course, there's many, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes you have someone, uh, they'll say 27 words, and it would take uh, 27 chapters to unwind every fallacy in that. And so that is so full of fallacies. And assumptions. I mean, the basic fallacy there is, is that that kind of statement is loaded with assumptions, which beg the question or that need to be proven. So, if if two people sit down to discuss what the rules should be in an abstract way, now look, we can talk about more particular rules once we have already agreed upon the general rules. But at this point, we don't even agree on the general rules. So the only only thing we know is that there are two people sitting down, and they have a dispute. Now, what does it mean to have a dispute? To have a dispute means – and this is where Mises' view of human action is critical because Mises has a framework where he understands human action as a human actor in the world 
attempts to employ scarce means or resources to achieve his end. Now, this general framework applies to Robinson Crusoe alone on his desert island, right? So even even so basic economic uh, principles would apply to explain the actions or to format the actions of a lone actor in the world. So he has to try to predict what's going to happen, understand the laws of nature, understand which uh, which resources are available, understand which possible ends are, are possible to him, try to understand which one will please him more, and then he will have to act to employ these means to achieve his ends. Right. But when we usually live in society, which means we live in, in close contact with other human actors, and that introduces a different element. So Crusoe alone on his island, he has to face threats like uh, mortality, disease, alligators, storms, you know, pestilence, drought, whatever. He's got to take these challenges into account. Um, but when humans or, or other humans arrive on the scene, um, it's a double-edged sword because number one, having other humans is a good thing because we get pleasure from living with other people. We have society. And friendship and uh, relationships, and we also have the possibility of of mutual effort and trade, um, and that is a good thing. So then you have the possibility of the division of labor and the specialization of labor, which can theoretically make us richer, right? So that's the good part. But also, all these other people have their own goals and they have free will, and now you have a threat. To the security you had in your means, you had these means you had available to you to choose how to act or to achieve your to achieve your ends. But now there's a possibility you might have another human come along and um, use one of your resources without your permission and frustrate you from being able to complete your um, your ends. Which means that you can have a dispute arise. So this is exactly why property rights emerge, and they only emerge because of scarcity. And by the way, this is exactly why intellectual property is completely illegitimate. Is because it's not a scarce resource, but or it's not a rivalrous resource. But that's just a side comment. So the the point is, you you have any dispute is always that kind of dispute. Any dispute between people. Which motivates them to sit down with each other and try to have a dialogue to figure this out is always ultimately a dispute about who should own a resource that's in question. So if it's it's some of my money or if it's a piece of land or if it's my house or if it's my body uh, and some other guy wants to use my body to have sex with it or to conscript me for his army right, or to kill me because I won't… Um, to punish me because I won't um, worship his his God. Basically, he he wants control of my body, but I want control of my body. So our dispute is over who owns my body. Um, if he wants some of my money to pay to the government in terms of taxes to support a welfare state, then the dispute is over who owns my money. So the disputes are always, always, and this is an important point. Always disputes between two or more human actors over the control of a scarce resource. So for example, you have people say things like um, uh, people fight wars over religion, and that is a misleading description because what they're really saying is they're, they're describing the motivations or the goals of the people that fought. 
But they didn't really fight over religion. Religion was the reason they fought. But what they fought over was physical things. They fought over women's bodies, horses' bodies, physical territory, land, and the right to stab a sword into someone's belly if they didn't worship Allah or whatever. So the fight is always a fight over over scarce resources. If everyone was like immaterial angels who could pass through each other and just not harm each other, they could they could squabble and have disagreements over religion, but there could be no fight. The fight is always over physical things, which means disputes are always over physical things. Which means the rules are always rules about who gets to control physical things, which means when you have people sit down and discuss with each other, ultimately they're talking about who owns what. So if I sit down with some socialist or some democratic modern socialist, and he just mouths off what you just did, which is, you know, well, you're here. Um, I mean that's a little bit jumping the gun. So the question is who owns the money? I have a pile of gold here, which I earned in trade with… With my neighbors, okay, selling selling horseshoes and saddles or whatever. I've got a bunch of gold here. Now, you want to take it to pay for the national healthcare service. I don't want you to take it. So we have a dispute. So the question is, who owns the gold? And if he starts saying, "Well, you live here, and therefore you consent to it," so that's his argument. So his argument now is, "Well, you own the gold at first. But because you chose not to leave, the gold magically transformed or transferred to to the government. Well, that's just not a good argument. I mean, wh- why is it? so? All arguments have to ultimately be universalizable. This is another thing Hoppe emphasizes, which is another Kantian concept. That means that when you propose a norm, it has to be the type of norm that that is general. It is not particularizable. It is not just effectively you saying. I can hit you because I'm me, and you can't hit me because you're you. That is not the type of argument that could ever satisfy um, two people sincerely trying to come up with a, a fair rule because it's the same as not arguing. It's the same as just not arguing at all. Now, if you don't argue at all, then that means that the other person is an outlaw or a criminal, and we have to treat criminals and outlaws as basically animals and just threats to us, and we have to treat them, as Han says, Hoppe says, as a technical problem. Yeah, so there are criminals and outlaws and socialists out there, but to the extent someone will engage in a sincere, genuine argument, they have to give reasons rooted in the basis of things, and these reasons have to take into account things that we can't deny, and those are the fundamental grunt norms I mentioned earlier. So one of those has to be the basic presumption is that everyone owns their body. Otherwise, we couldn't have an argument with each other. Like That's the basic presumption. You own your body, which is why you don't want me to hit you, so you're effectively claiming self-ownership to make this argument with me. But because we're the same type of creature, whatever basis you think gives you your rights, you have to admit that I have the rights too. It would be just incoherent and, un- and, and illogical and contradictory. For you to say, I have rights in my body, but you don't have rights in your body. So both people have to basically grant that they have self-ownership rights and that therefore the other person also has self-ownership rights. And this also flows from the fact that um, they have both in effect undertaken to engage in a peaceful discussion. So there's a peace element here too, and the fact that they're eschewing violence and choosing to try to resolve things rationally… 
means that they're, they think it's wrong to use violence against other people's bodies, which is also another way to recognize people own their bodies. And then you could extend this argument to other things, ownership of other things. Like Hans points out that on argumentation is not just a theoretical thing that we imagine. It's a practical affair. Argumentation always happens among real human beings at a real time and place on a real place on the earth, having a real physical body. And this body has – is mortal and requires – physical resources just to have survived and to continue surviving. In other words, for the human race to even exist, people at some point had to go out into the state of nature and start using or employing unowned resources in the world. They have to have the right to do this. Otherwise, they never could have done it, and we wouldn't exist. So anyone participating in argumentation has to grant not only self-ownership rights over bodies. They have to grant the legitimacy of a, what we call original appropriation. That is, people have to be able to go out and use things, at least things that no one else has claimed already. And then the one final step would be contract. You have to recognize that people, once you own a thing, because you're the owner, you have the right to transfer it to someone else. Now, if you just take these three simple rules, body ownership or self-ownership, original appropriation, some people call that homesteading… And the right to, as an owner of the thing, now that you've homesteaded it, you can transform it into different shapes and sell it at a higher price, or you can give it as a gift, whatever. You can transfer it to someone else by contract. That means your consensual transfer. You combine these three simple rules, and these have to be assumed by everyone engaging in discussion because all these things are essential to them having survived and existing in the first place. So they can't deny these rules. <laughs> and so this makes a long story short, but what I would say is you could come up with a set of arguments based upon those three principles, which are undeniable by both sides, combined with a little bit of economic reasoning, right? some, some sound economic reasoning, um, and you could show that any socialist proposal such as the ones you're, you're imagining here would be uh, incompatible with that, which means that they're – they're basically proposing a norm that is contradicts the the implications of the Grun norms that they've already accepted by engaging in peaceful discourse between living human beings who who live and work in the world. So basically, I would say that when you say uh, 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 by living here you've consented to it, that's just an empty assertion. Where does that come from? How do you trace it back to the, the rules we know are, are undeniably true? How do you trace that back to original appropriation, self-ownership, and contract? And of course you can't because original ownership means as long as I am acting and I'm not harming anyone else's body, I, I have a right to be left alone. Uh, if I homestead a piece of land in the middle of nowhere… And no one else owned it before. No one else can complain about that because everyone presupposes the right to live upon originally homesteaded things. Or if I bought it from someone by contract, then I have title from that guy. So you can't you can't say you have a better title than me. So for you to say now you have to leave or give up part of this farm because you've chosen not to leave, it's just incompatible because you're what you're just assuming that I have an obligation which I never undertook. Right? So my only obligation is to use my property within my own borders and not interfere on yours. That's it. 
So if you say you have an obligation to pay taxes, that's just an assertion. It doesn't have any argument behind it. In other words, it's, it's question begging because you're assuming democracy. You're assuming, you're assuming that the collective has the right to make me leave my land, which means they're assuming ownership of my land. But I never gave them ownership of my land. I didn't pre- – unless I performed some kind of act of aggression or a tort or I contractually sold my land to them, they never gained a control right to my land and have no right to oust me from it. So that would be the response, I think, to that kind of argument. And you could all any, – any similar social, social democratic or modern collectivist argument is always going to suffer because none of them are ultimately compatible with the libertarian presuppositions. When you are interacting with somebody, uh, what is – explain the term performative contradiction. A performative contradiction – well, a contradiction, of course – a contradiction per se means um, um, statements that are not compatible with the other, right? A, a dict means a, a statement, and contra means against. So it, it, that's just the Aristotelian laws of, of logic that um, A and not A can't be true at the same time and in the same respect, right? I mean, either something is or it's not. They can't both be true. And pretty much everyone, except maybe some postmodernists, you know, accept that. Um, so a performative contradiction is like a, a, a type or a subset of a contradiction. It's something that's a contradiction because of the way you're acting. So um, like you could imagine a universe where there is no human life. I, I don't think it's a logical contradiction or it's logically impossible. There could be a lifeless universe. There probably was a lifeless universe some point in the past. Um, but if you say um, there is no life, that's a performative contradiction because it takes a life to say that. So to the extent there is a life form existing who is making the statement there is no life, uh, uh, that actor would be undercutting his statement by the, the practical realities or the presuppositions of what he's doing. So in other words, it's just a way of showing… Some things we can know for sure. I mean, I would say Descartes's cogito is is like that. He said, "Cogito ergo sum." I think, therefore, I am. A way to unpack that is, I know that I'm thinking because I am thinking, and therefore I can reason that I must exist because you can't think unless you have an existence that's able to provide you the ability to think. So the fact that I know for sure that I'm thinking gives me some knowledge about the world. So if you were to say I don't exist, that would be a practical contradiction or a performative contradiction because what you're doing is contradicting the underlying assertion. So it's just another way to show that some statements can't be true. So for example, it cannot be true that socialism is just because all those statements… Are statements that have to be made in the course of a peaceful argumentation, which presupposes the libertarian <laughs> foundational norms, which are incompatible with socialism. So it's just, in other words, it's just a way of it's a way of pointing out to people why socialism cannot be argumentatively justified, which means it can't be justified, which means it's not just, which means it's unjust. Now, not everyone cares about whether things are just. So 
Some people just are going to rule with the sword, or they're going to, you know, you, you, you could have a guy about to rob you. You could give him a five-minute soliloquy explaining why he has no right to rob you. He might even agree and then say, I'm going to rob you anyway because people have free will. So all that means is he's violated your rights, and he's acted unjustly, and that injustice in the world is possible. All that means is that arguments for rights are not always a practical way to defend the integrity of your property. Sometimes you need locks and guns and etc. But to the extent we live in society and we live among people who by and large give some – attach some importance to the idea of doing things that are fair and just and right, then they have to and they will and they do engage in – in civilized discourse, and at that point, you can you can alert them. You can say, "Listen, you're you're supporting this, but think about what you're also supporting by being part of a civilized discussion with me." We're sitting here respecting each other's place on the earth and our rights, and yet you're supporting a law that doesn't respect my rights. So you're basically supporting things that are internally incompatible. You have to choose. And it's not even that. He can't even choose the latter because if he chooses it, it's still incompatible with the, the peaceful norms of argument. So he just has to step outside of argument. He has to not care about justifying his argument and not pretend anymore that he's actually engaged in civilized discourse, and he basically becomes your outright enemy like an animal, which is why at the, at the end of the day, people that are too stubborn to care about consistently – Justifying their actions have to be regarded as threats and have to, be, have to be regarded as what Hoppe calls mere technical problems. So you can you could logically divide humanity into two sets. One is a set of animals who are just threats to us, and we have to treat them shrewdly and warily. And the other side are amenable to reason, and if they're logical and consistent and know a little bit about economics have to basically agree with us on our anarchist, capitalist, libertarian conclusions, but it's hard, right? And so it's a little bit like that, that old joke about uh, – um, I think Walter Block tells it like uh, uh, you, you ask a guy, uh, what's the difference between um, – what's the difference between a, 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 a sink and a toilet? And the guy says, I don't know, and you say, well, then I won't be inviting you to my house. <laughs> I mean basically if someone is determined to be a socialist, which means they are determined to violate your rights even though they can't justify it, and even though you've shown them that, that it's incompatible with the civilized norms of discourse that they have to presuppose when they start talking like they're trying to justify it. If, they, if they're determined to go ahead with it, then they basically declare themselves to be effectively an animal or an outlaw. And you just and this is I mean this is how we regard the government. We libertarians, we, the government is a threat to us. Maybe you don't want to challenge them sometimes because of prudence, but basically they are an existential threat to civilized human life. This is why they destroy, right? This is why we're libertarians. Hmm. Um, before we wrap up, uh, or be, yeah, before we end, can you give an example of um, like a a real critical 
um, challenge that somebody's made to argumentation ethics, where they've tried to say that no, this it just doesn't work. Um, uh, people that are interested in that, and it is quite interesting. I, I would say look at this 1988 Liberty, which is on Hoppe's website, and I have links to it in my concise guide. Um, he basically it was a symposium, so Hoppe came out with a, a, a summary version of his argument, and then there was about a dozen or 15 short responses, and most of them had one or two or three types of criticisms, and Hans replied to most of them, and then about three years ago, he he, he kind of let the matter go, and then people like me and other defenders have taken up the mantle in the last 20 years, but about three years ago at, at his uh, annual talk in Turkey at his Property and Freedom Society meeting, he did – he finally did an extended – um, he revisited the whole thing and and went after some of his critics. So um, I, I can just touch on it here, but I would say anyone should should look at that. Um, um, like my my friend Bob Murphy and Gene Callahan, who used to be a libertarian and used to be an Austrian, um, or used to pretend to be anyway. Um, You're talking about Callahan, not Murphy. Yeah, yeah, Bob's great. Yeah, I'm talking about. <laughs> His, his friend Callahan. They they wrote an article uh, attacking Hoppe's argumentation ethics, and I wrote a long res- piece responding to it. And I did something like uh, what? Um, oh, there's a Polish guy who just gave a, a, a Lukasz Dominique, something like that. I just I just he's he's in this list. He gave a speech last month at Mises about Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which is really good. Yeah, I, I met him. He's a, he's a very nice gentleman, very friendly and very smart. Yep. Yeah, he's he's awesome, and I'm probably butchering his name, so I apologize. Um, but um, he, he did what I did. He basically tried to reformulate or reframe Hans's argument in his own words, which is kind of what I've done today. Um, Hans proceeds in a different fashion. Um, he's got that Teutonic mind, uh, which is razor sharpened, <laughs> hyperlogical and precise. Uh, but and that's what I did when I responded to Murphy and Callahan. I said, listen. Let's stop back and think. Here's what the basic argument is, and if you look at it this way, none of your criticisms uh, really land. But like one of their criticisms was was this one. It's something like, um, at most, Tapa has proven that libertarian ethics apply during an argument or while people are arguing. So in other words, he hasn't proven them like in some general eternal sense. Only that so long as you're arguing, um, these are the operative rules of the game, but once you're done arguing, then you're free to start attacking each other or taking each other's property. So that's one type of argument, and a related one would be like the one – well, you could imagine like back in antebellum times in the US or in, in Greek times when there was slavery, you could imagine a master – having a long conversation with his slave about all this stuff, right? But the whole time, the master legally owns the slave and his body, and but the argument would tend to say that it's impossible to argue with the slave as long as he's a slave. So he's not a slave, but he is a slave. So they would say that the argument is flawed because the fact that you can argue with your slave shows that you're just wrong, that it's impossible so the, those kind of critiques um, 
that's one type of critique. I think they're both flawed for reasons Hans gives them that I've given, others are given. And, uh, we probably don't have time to go into it, but I think those are flawed. But th- that is one type of criticism. Um, another criticism would be that um, um, the, uh, basically the empiricist criticism or the utilitarian criticism, which is that the, the type of view like David Friedman or these guys, they, they don't believe in the, the, the scientificness, let's say, um, of, of normative reasoning at all. They think it's everything is about economics, right? So, which is why they're Milton Friedman type monists, right? They, they think that you have to decide everything by, by empirical data and by tests. You can't just sit down in your armchair like Hoppe does and spin out a bunch of deductions and come up with an answer. They think it's just – they're the same type of people who just don't accept Kant's idea that there are synthetic a priori. You know, it's basically that's all tautologies. So they think it's kind of meaningless wordplay and jabber. Uh, my my basic response to all these people would be more of an attitude, an attitudinal one. And by the way, I've, I've written my own kind of related or cousin theory called estoppel, which we didn't have time to get into, but I've I've got links to that there too. But so I built on Hans's view with my kind of legalistic view of estoppel, which is the idea that if you commit aggression against someone. You basically have laid down the law that it's okay to use someone's resource without their permission, so you can't complain if the victim tries to retaliate against you, which would be what justice entails, the right to retaliate. Um, so, and that, that, that sort of sets up a different way to argue for something similar. And by the way, I have a, a, an article called New Rationalist Directions and Libertarian Rights Theory. Which I just published. Well, I changed the title. I updated it. It was in a book that was released like two months ago. Uh, it's called Dialectical Approaches to Libertarianism, or something like that. The editor is Chris Schiabera and Roger Bissell, and um, another co-editor. Um, and so I have a chapter in there where I summarize my argument and Hoppe's and some other related arguments. So anyone who's interested in this should take a look at that. It's on my website. It's uh, it's the dialectical. I think my argument is called dialogical approaches to libertarian rights. Dialogical, which means this type of argument. Um, but my main ba- my main argument against people who have a problem with Hoppe and who are already libertarians is this. First of all, most of them don't have their own coherent argument for rights. Some of them are natural law types, but even they tend to admit that it is problematic to go from an is to an ought. The closest you'll find is someone like Roderick Long or or his, his sort of a follower, Jeff Ploche. They say that that's a problem, but you don't have to do it that way. It's called an, it's called an assertoric thing. So in other words, they're saying it's not… It's not if you're a human, therefore then you must act like this or you should, which would be an is-ought jump, which is logically problematic. They say it's it's a since then. Like since you're a human with certain values, then the following higher-level values apply, which I think is true, but that's the same thing that Hoppe argues. He basically – he's just pointing your attention to the fact that you and I are fellow humans… Who have already adopted certain liberal values like of peace and discourse and reason to come up to come to this argument in the first place. So we already accept those certain grunt norms or values. So since we do, what's compatible with that? What can we build on that? So you have that. But I would say that for anyone else, it's like 
if you if you're a libertarian who just is an intuitive libertarian, I have no problem with that. Most people don't have a sophisticated defense of their rights. If you're a consequentialist or utilitarian, that's okay with me too. But the bottom line is that you're sitting here agreeing with me and others. We all agree roughly on the non-aggression principle. You might have a different spin on it. You might prefer a different term, voluntarist or whatever. But we all basically agree on on the on the fundamental substance of the libertarian uh, approach. And some of us agree for no reason. Some of us agree for pure preference, or they th we think we do. Some of us agree for intuition. Some of us agree for common sense. Some of us agree for uh, personal preference and taste. Some of us think we have arguments, natural law arguments, utilitarian arguments, consequentialist arguments, legal arguments, historical arguments, whatever. But most people don't have a real solid argument, and why they would be so hostile to someone like Hoppe… Who emerges, who's one of us, and who says, here's why, here's why you can't deny the truth of the libertarian uh, principles. Okay, That's his argument. And for people to get upset with that, especially when they don't have their own argument, it's like I don't understand what does it hurt. Like if you have no argument yourself, you just happen to agree with libertarian principles. But you think they're kind of true for some reason, and Hans is saying they're true. So all he's really saying is if something is true, then if you if you argue for the opposite, you're going to contradict yourself, which is basically what you have to believe if you believe libertarian rights are true. So the the hostility Hans has received is is mystifying to be honest. I, I can only think it's because of. Basically, hostility to people that are Germans, right? Or because Rand poisoned the well for Kantian type reasoning, um, or because he was a, a nobody, an upstart who just emerged on the scene in the 80s as Rothbard's star pupil. And you had a lot of people invested in their stodgy old American constitutional natural rights crap, and he. He he upset the apple card, you know, and they they don't like being upstaged, and it's professional jealousy. I mean, I'm psychologizing here, but I'm just saying there is it's, it doesn't make any sense for a libertarian to be upset with another libertarian for trying to come up with an argument that the things we all agree with are actually true. It's just bizarre. And then they'll say something like, "Well, I'd rather have a bad ar a no argument than a bad argument." I'm like, "Well, apparently that's what you have because you don't have an argument anyway." So you're just saying that, "Hey, hey, fellow socialists, I I prefer liberty." That's my argument. I, I mean, okay, that's not going to persuade people either. And maybe Hoppe's meta approach is not going to persuade people in a real sense, but it's an. Hans's argument is meant as an explanation to people that are already leaning our way who are curious about why it turns out that the libertarian norm is the one that's just. And the reason is because it's the only one that's compatible with peace and cooperation. It's just the only one. Libertarianism basically is peace and cooperation elevated to higher levels of, 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 of rules informed by economics. Well, I think we should stop right there. Uh, what do you have to plug as far as books? And I know you have a book coming up when you decide to get it out. 
<laughs> yeah, well, the the, the Chris Guevara book just came out. Um, <clears throat> it's it's really interesting. It's lots of diverse contributions. So I would recommend people take a look at that. It's Dialectical Approaches to Liberty by Chris Guevara, S-C-I-A-B-A-R-R-A. It's on my website, stephancancella.com. Um, I have a, a international law book coming out in about a month from Oxford, which most of your audience won't have an interest in. It's totally non-normative. It's totally about law, but it's about how uh, companies that in, invest mega projects in other countries can use international law to try to protect their private property rights from being um, expropriated by the local um, host governments who are usually – after certain decades pass, they want to confiscate or expropriate you know. Um, uh, kleptocracies, most of them, right? Mm. Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, so that's an international law book I'm kind of excited about. It's coming as a second edition. It's coming out um, next month. It's, the first edition was 2005, so it's been a while. But yeah, so I, I'm working on my revised and selected, like more of the high level libertarian theory essays, um, which is called Law in a Libertarian World. So it's too early to plug it, but if I get off my keister and finally add the final gloss it needs it should be out in six months yeah i was looking through you sent me to the page um you sent me a link to the page and it looks really interesting it looks uh looks like something that if you would have put out now i could use for my documentary <laughs> <laughs> well you know every every article that will be in it is already online and i have them linked so a crude version of it is basically up already so the content is there it's going to be a little tweaked and put in a polished form but the whole book is basically up i got it here yeah i'm on, i'm on the page and i'm going to link up to everything that you mentioned in here and if there's something that, something else you think that uh that i should link to uh make sure to send it through but um thanks i really appreciate your time i enjoyed it thanks I want to thank you for tuning into the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. I want to thank Stefan for coming on. That's it. Be back in a few days with another show. Take care and bye.